With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Presented by SB Nation. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru. Keaton, welcome back for another episode. This is uh, episode 159 of this show uh, over, over the course of its life. We're getting up there in episodes. Man. Time's flying, even when we're all by ourselves. Yes. Um, so as rumors are abound about the start of baseball, we are not going to comment on those yet because they are just that uh, plufified rumors that may or may not be true. I guess we can just mention it off the top. Uh, well, yeah, we can. We can. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> about it real quick for just a second here, Keaton. Um, what's the Ploof rumor that you've been hearing? Yeah, it's like 40 minutes ago, Trevor Ploof tweeted out, um, he just heard from multiple sources that June 10th, spring training two will start, and July 1st will be opening day, and all teams will be playing um, their home parks. Uh, One of the first replies was Jack Flaherty, who says, this is news to me. (laughs) So, um, I guess we're still in a holding pattern to find out if this is for real, but uh, I guess that's what's out there. Yeah, and and I think um, the the appropriate thing to do with this information is just kind of wait and see because we really don't know. And also the the wrinkle about them all playing in their home parks right now, meaning that like we would start games at Fenway in early July, seems sort of ridiculous to me, <clears throat> considering nothing has opened up in a lot of the markets that baseball teams play in. But um, you know, we'll wait and see. And as we have more news, and if something does break. For Major League Baseball, we will record a an emergency episode to talk about the plan. Um, however, today, what we have to talk about, um, Keaton and I wrote some interesting articles. And uh, I'm doing a huge series right now that you may or may not be reading. If you're not, you should. Um, I'm doing the all-time Red Sox 40-man roster. And then I'm doing individual write-ups for all of the people who made the 26-man But throughout this time, there have been some really, really difficult choices um, on who is going to be on this roster and why. So on today, we're going to today's episode, we're going to talk about three of those really difficult choices um, that I had to make. Uh, We're also going to hit on Keaton's uniform article um, from Uniform Week last week. And then we have a few listener questions that we're going to get to and maybe something else if we have some extra time. All right, Keaton, so let's get right to it. Um, One of the biggest debates that I had uh, while doing this with myself, (laughs) I guess, is an internal debate, Um, but it was between Dustin Pedroia and Bobby Doerr for the best second baseman in the history of baseball uh, for the Red Sox. Um, Glad I 
corrected myself because Joe Morgan and Rogers Hornsby would have had some issues with that. Um, but by and large, I mean, this is, this is a pretty big embarrassment of riches for one franchise to have two guys of this quality. Um, ultimately I ended up going with Dustin Pedroia over Bobby door. Um, you know, both of these guys, an interesting thing that I learned about them while uh, researching both of these players is that, um, both of them kind of lost it at 33 years old. Um, you know, Pedroia is 35 now, but he hasn't played since he was 33. Essentially he's played, you know, he's appeared in nine games since then. Um, but both of these guys kind of lost it physically over that course of time, um, at the same age. And then the other thing here that's interesting is like the way that they played the game is actually kind of different. Um, they have some similarities defensively, but I wanted to get your take on this whole thing. Did I make the right call by choosing Pedroia over Bobby Doerr in your opinion? So initially I was going to say no. But because um, I was, I thought it may have been just kind of like an emotionally fueled choice. Uh, but the more I looked at it, the more I I don't think I, I would have disagreed with you if you went either way on this one in particular. Because uh, Pedroia has played about 350 less games. Um, and over the course of, you know, if, I mean, we can't really say that, like, if we just, like, extrapolate Pedroia's numbers out, because he, he didn't get, he didn't play, he was hurt, so you have to kind of take that into account. But what he did accomplish while he was on the field was, like, almost identical to what Dor did. And they had the exact same WRC+, plus, which I thought was interesting. Their wars weren't really all that far apart either. Um, and what Pedroia maybe lacked in the injury-shortened um, career, I guess, if we're assuming that, you know, it's it's probably over at this point. He made up for with the awards because he has uh, an MVP. He has Rookie of the Year, things that Bobby Doerr does not have. So, I mean, there was a stretch here where Dustin Petroyos was one of the best players in all of baseball. Um, and during Doerr's career, I don't think he was. So I, I don't think I could have faulted you if you had gone either way. With Pedroia, who maybe had accumulated less stats, but had the hardware, versus um, a bit more longevity from Door. I don't, I don't know if you really could have gone wrong with uh, either one of those picks. Yeah, that's just the thing is that both of these selections were really good ones um, for me. I, after doing my research, I kind of realized that um, while both of them were excellent defenders, the interesting thing that I learned was that um, Bobby Door's actual uh, defense was considered to be tops uh, at second base when he played, but he, he wasn't quite as rangy uh, by all, uh, all the, the things that I've read about that. He didn't make a lot of mistakes, but he wasn't very rangy at all uh, compared to Pedroia, who just made ridiculous plays we've seen a million times. Um, but also at the time, they didn't give out the Gold Glove Award. So, you know, we don't know exactly how he would have compared to his peers in a lot of different areas. But yeah, that was, a th that was kind of the big separator for me with uh, Pedroia and, and Bobby Doerr was Pedroia's MVP award rookie of the year. Um, wasn't an all-star nearly as many times as Bobby Doerr who did it nine times, I believe. Yeah, it was nine times um, for him, just four times for Dustin Pedroia. But uh, they also played pretty different brands of baseball. Uh, Bobby Doerr was an RBI guy, um, whereas Pedroia was sort of a run producer at the top of the lineup. And 
When I think about second baseman, this might be a bias of mine too, but I typically think of second baseman in the vein more of Dustin Pedroia um, than I do Bobby Doerr in terms of being more of a, a run producer than an RBI producer. Yeah, I think I think so too. I think it's, uh, I guess particularly nowadays, it's harder to find like the Brian Dozers of the world. Right. Are going to like smack 40 dingers and hit 210 at second base. You just don't usually see that. Yeah, and there was a, a, a more substantial war gap between these two players on um, Fangraph's war, uh, where Bobby Dewar was worth about 53, if I recall correctly, and uh, Pedroia was worth about 48. But when you go by baseball uh, reference war, um, they were really, really close to one another. So this was definitely one of the more difficult choices I had to make, but I feel confident in this. And then also Ian Brown, uh, who writes for the Red Sox.com and MLB, uh, came to the same conclusion this past week or last week. I can't remember exactly when it was. So I don't know. That made me feel a little bit better about the choice as well. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. The next one that I had kind of a lot of trouble with, and I haven't uh announced this person as my starting center fielder yet but anybody with red Sox knowledge can probably guess it but i did something kind of ridiculous in the minds of a lot of people i stuck tris speaker on the bench uh instead of being my starting center fielder and i opted to go with fred lynn as my starting center fielder for this all-time team um speaker has one of the highest wars in the history of baseball no matter what war metric you look at uh, he also is the all-time leader in doubles. He's up there in triples. He's up there, and he's the all-time leader in outfield assists. I mean, basically, tons of metrics uh, across baseball. Um, speaker is is one of the best. I mean, he was at the first um, Baseball Hall of Fame inauguration as well. He wasn't the first class, but he was one of the first four classes. Um, so legendary player, and I ended up going with Fred Lynn over him. And the big reason why I went with Fred Lynn, the Red Sox Fred Lynn, is because for those years, from 74 to 1980, before he became a California Angel and oft injured and all those things, he was like the perfect hitter for Fenway Park. Um, he didn't steal bases like Tris Speaker. However, he hit well over 300. He was a Big-time OBP guy, slugged the crap out of the ball, used the wall in Fenway um, just about as good as anybody ever has. He made the all-star team from 75 all the way to 80. He won an MVP and a Rookie of the Year, came in fourth in the MVP another time. Um, for my money, Fred Lynn is the best center fielder of all time for the Red Sox. Yeah, I think you got this one wrong. That's what I disagree with you on. Because, so, you have in your notes that your big, um, kind of the the significant differentiator between the two was the era. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, it's just how I would go about this list. It's just kind of different. But I think you have to take everything at face value because it's so incredibly hard to compare eras. Because if you do that, then you basically wouldn't pick a pitcher from, like, before, like, 1995. Mm-hmm. Just for the the amount of strikeouts and um, 
how different pitching is now versus even like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're just going to have to take what the player did at face value and just – I think it's just really hard to compare the errors. And just being almost just like double the war of Fred Lynn. Oh, easily. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, that's – I mean that's significant enough of a gap where if I'm like trying to like I guess squint to, to see a difference, I I – wouldn't be able to go with Lynn over speaker. Yeah. So a few things I, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of merit to what you say. And, uh, I think for me initially when I made my first draft of the list, I was with you. I had speaker as my, as my center fielder out there and, and speaker by all accounts was a tremendous, uh, defender in center field. But also one of the things that was really popular to do in the dead ball era, which is when he began his career, he began his career, um, recalling from memory, I wrote this like last week, but I believe he began his career in 1907. Um, and he played until well into, I believe played past 1926 or to 1926. So about six or seven years into uh, the live ball era or the modern era. But a trademark of, of the dead ball era was, uh, playing extremely shallow because it was rare for a ball to actually make it over your head. Because we're talking about baseballs that are scuffed and broken and dented and, you know, all these different things. So he would play basically right behind the second baseman and catch balls and double guys up on his, on his own and throw guys out at first base and like all sorts of ridiculous stuff that you'd never see today. He had 35 outfield assists twice uh, during the dead ball era. Um, but his best totals after that were 20, which is still a ton of outfield assists. I'm just not sure that that part of his game would really translate to today where everybody's hitting home runs, um, and, you know, hitting everything in the air and things like that. Um, he's an impressive player, but when I was thinking about where he would fit in my lineup too, like he's a leadoff guy, right? With that speed and that on base ability, he'd be a leadoff guy. Mm-hmm. So my leadoff guy's Wade Boggs, and I wanted a run producer in my lineup too. So I think that's another reason why I thought of it. Like, you give me 27-year-old Fred Lynn in 1979, 39 home runs, 122 RBIs, 333, 423, 637, stick that at the end of my lineup, sure. You know, that was pretty attractive to me. So I think that... I kind of just preferred Fred Lynn's best season over his 1912 season with the 50 steals. Didn't really fit versus what I was looking for. And also Fred Lynn was an amazing uh, fielder too. Four-time gold glover. And all four of those came with the Red Sox. Yeah. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Fred Lynn. I just think for me, I would have gone with Speaker there just because of everything else that he accumulated. But I guess it does add a wrinkle, though, when you're putting together, like, a 40-man roster and a lineup and slotting people in a batting order versus just who was the best here at this position. That does kind of add a piece to it. So I guess maybe you can convince me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, both I'll leave of the these door open to being convinced, but I think I would have got my speaker. Fair enough. And I think a lot of people were with you. Um, the other the other wrinkle I'll, I'll I'll say about Speaker before we get off of him is personal life for Speaker not the best. 
not the best. And a lot of these guys back then were not the best, but he was uh, particularly pretty bad. So if you are interested more in reading about Speaker, go check out my Speaker article. A little disappointed that Catfish Mekovich didn't make your roster. That's a that's quite a, quite a name. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. All right. So the, the third and final one I want to talk about before we move on to talking about uniforms is one that was one of the most interesting people that I've had to write about. And I knew he was going to be one of the most fun to write about. But I wrote about Yastrzemski. Um, I think it was Friday that came out. And, you know, people were really active in the comments. It was great. It was really fun interacting people. And it's what struck me about Yaz was just how important he still is to everybody around here and what a lasting legacy he is. You know, a guy that connects all the way back to taking over in left field for legendary Ted Williams and then playing all the way into the eighties. Um, really impressive. Uh, just learning about him and putting that article together. I had a ton of fun and people seem to have a ton of fun reading it as well. Unfortunately for Yastrzemski, he plays left field for the Red Sox, uh, which for making my list purposes makes that impossible because Ted Williams exists. Um, and I I just decided to do this kind of crazy activity over the weekend because I have always theorized that the Red Sox uh, left field situation was the best position in the history of baseball. And I never knew it for sure. So I decided to take it upon myself to do this thing where I went through every single position, catcher through left field, all the way around the diamond, and I added up the top three war producers at that position in every team's history. I did this by hand, too. It took me forever. That sounds like quite an undertaking. Yeah, I don't know why I did it, but I'm really stuck on this. And I found out that, indeed, the Red Sox left field is the top producing position group of all time. The Red Sox top three left fielders combined for 276 F4, the second best position group of all time is St. Louis first baseman at 245.9, followed by Yankees center field, Yankees left field, Yankees right field, (laughs) Pirates shortstop, Braves right field, Tigers right field, Braves third base, St. Louis left field, Giants center field, and Tigers center field. But I did that for every position group, and 276 war between those three guys was so much more than every other position. And the thing that you can't really take into account, too, with some of these other positions like St. Louis first base, Yankees left field, Yankees right field, uh, Yankees center field is true to, to form really excellent. Um, but those two positions, Babe Ruth split his time at those two. So I was counting Babe Ruth in total at both right field and left field. But in actuality, I'd have to kind of split the war of Babe Ruth between those two places. So those probably actually aren't in the top five because of that. Actually, they're not close if you take them out. And St. Louis first base was another tricky one because um, Stan Musial played majority of his time in the outfield. Um, So 
I'd also have to split his war up significantly. So it's really Red Sox left field and Yankees center field as the top two of all time. And then probably Pirates shortstop uh, third. But I, I found it was really fascinating uh, having to do that. Yeah, that is a really interesting exercise. And even though I'm sure that was pretty tight, but I'm glad you did it because that is very interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to fire <clears throat> off the data. I'm still trying to figure out how to write an article about this data that I've compiled now. Yeah. Uh, and it's not perfect, so I'm going to I'm gonna continue to tweak it. But yes, so the, the whole story here is that Yaz is the second best player in Red Sox history, uh, arguably. If you want to say Clemens, that's fine. Um, I, I think you could totally make that argument that Clemens is better than Yaz. I wouldn't make that argument. For me, it's Williams, then Yaz in Red Sox history. Um, as an overall player, I should say. Um, but yeah, I had to make the call of putting Yaz on my bench. And that was really hard because Yaz also is third all-time in games played at first base. But here's my wrinkle with this. So when Yaz was playing first base, here's his line. Over 753 games as a first baseman. Batted 277, 377, 439 with an 813 OPS. The guy who I ended up starting over him, Jimmy Fox, was a great nickname, Double X, another great nickname, The Beast. Uh, in his seven years with the Red Sox, over 887 games, this was his line 320, 429, 605. And he had a 50 home run season with an MVP in there. He had 175 RBI in 1938. That year he batted 349, 462, 704 with an 1166 OPS. Jimmy Fox hit the hell out of the ball. Sure did. So I went with Fox at first base. Yeah, I think that was the right thing to do. Because kind of like the... um, taking guys' errors into account and kind of, like, comparing against errors when, when putting stuff in. I think you have to have some kind of, like, rules when you're doing a massive list like this. Yeah. And if you were going to say, hey, I'll take, you know, Yaz's whole career, but I'm going to put him in the first base, first base, then, I mean, you could kind of open Pandora's box with that and kind of put guys all over the place and um, really kind of shake up your entire lineup that way, kind of putting guys in... Like you, I guess theoretically you could have basically taken all three left fielders and just made your outfield out of them, which, I mean, there are right fielders and center fielders that are worthy of it, but you could have if you wanted to. So I like that you stuck with your, even though like it's just kind of a bummer that Yaz also played the same position as Williams. I think you would have to do the same. I would have done the same thing and put Yaz on the bench. It's just kind of like a, sorry, man. Yeah, it wasn't easy to do, um, but I do think it was the right thing ultimately. Um, Jimmy Fox did play majority of his career. Uh, yeah, he had seven amazing productive years here, but he played the majority of his career with the Philadelphia Athletics. So that made me think about it a little bit. But on uh, Joe Posnanski's recent top 100 uh, players of all time list, Yastrzemski came in at number 38 all time, which is great ranking. Um, but Fox came in at number 33. 
as well. And the thing that really stuck out to me about Jimmy Fox too is that he was basically the closest person to catching up to Babe Ruth in a pretty uh, small amount of time uh, after Babe Ruth, you know, kind of stopped being Babe Ruth. Um, he hit 58 home runs in 1932, um, just a few years after Babe Ruth had hit 60, a mark that he thought nobody would approach really anytime soon because it was so much more than everybody else at the time. And Jimmy Fox came along and was pretty much the next best thing to Babe Ruth um, a few years later when I think pitching got even a little bit better. So uh, I was really impressed with that. And then also um, the other thing that kind of stands out about Fox here is that Fox made his first all-star team at 25, um, which I don't know why because – Fox was amazing before that, um, but he continued to make all-star teams throughout his entire time with the Boston Red Sox. He only didn't when his health started to fail him in 1942. So, dude was pretty much an MVP contender every single year he was here. Yeah, that's impressive. <clears throat> okay. Um, all right. Now I want to talk about uniforms, Keaton. Can you explain... Yeah what you did with this uniform piece and why we should care about uniforms. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Matt tasked me with going through Red Sox uniform history because it was uniform week and just kind of highlighting the Sox uniforms through the years, which is pretty open-ended. So initially I was going to start by just basically starting at the beginning and then writing kind of like a little blurb about each one. Uh, and then I realized, kind of like in the early days, they changed a bunch, and I was going to be end up writing like 3,000 words. And I was like, that doesn't sound like fun, so let me break it down and just do like three best, three worst. And then I had to find some way to talk about the greatest logo in baseball history, um, so I did, I did a bonus uh, three best logos on that as well. So, a bit of a, there was really kind of only only one piece of criteria that I was following with this that I probably should have outlined in the uh, opening blurb, but I wasn't including alternate jerseys. I was just looking at main home and road uniforms throughout the years. So, the bright red Sunday afternooners were not included on my list, although they probably would have been part of the worst if I had expanded it to every single jersey that they've ever wear, ever worn. So, because I did get a couple comments about those bright red ones and how people hate them. And I kind of get it. It feels like a little spring training-ish when you're in the regular season, which Was that the weird. same thing with the navies? The dark blue, the all blue ones? That's an alternate as well. So, you didn't include those? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, the three worst, which um, there's some mixed reactions here. Um, number three... I had as the third worst jersey they have uh, ever worn is the 1970s pullovers because they look like Little League uniforms. They don't have buttons. They're just like pullovers. With, I'm, I'm sure that the letters were not screen printed like Little League ones, but it's basically kind of how you associate those uniforms. They just don't look like baseball uniforms. So, uh, you know, Yaz might have looked nice in that uni, but uh, no one else did. It wasn't a great look. 
and there was uh, there were some people from who uh, it seemed like their fandom had begun in the seventies who were mm. uh, not thrilled that I had that on the, the list of the worsts. <laughs> so I'm curious what your thought was. Uh, I'm with you, man. I did not like the uh, early seventies unis. Um, I think the I especially don't like the whatever that piping or fringe is around the the V neck there yeah. with the the neck is weird. No baseball uniform should be a pullover <laughs> like one of those starter jackets. That's super weird. Um, yeah, and I also didn't like the waistband at all. It just it felt cheap. It looked cheap. Yeah. It looked tacky. Yeah, and that was the other thing that I noticed or that I noted in my little blurb about it was that like it. <laughs> It looks like cheap little league uniforms and not like a major league baseball team. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm with you. That was that's garbage. Then the second worst, I had the 1902 uh, home and road, which um, were the homes were white, the roads were gray, and they just had the old English script B and A for the Boston Americans before they became the Red Sox, and I just. The two things that stuck out to me about that jersey were that it was old English script, which uh, maybe I would feel different if it had stuck through. Uh, but whenever we see kind of a baseball uniform in old English script, it really is like the Detroit Tigers signature look. So it's kind of looked like a bit of a knockoff of them. But then also the fact that they took the field wearing a shirt that just read bah. <laughs> it seems like if that had happened today, it would be meme to hell. Well, it's B.A. It means badass, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, at that time, the Red Sox were actually pretty badass uh, for the beginning part of the century. They were one of the best teams. And, and the Detroit sure. Tigers were just a year old at this point. So I don't know if you'd be ripping off the uh, the what we think of as the classic Old English D at that point. But, right. yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think these are a little basic. Uh, I would have had them third. I would. I think the... The tacky 70s ones are actually worse than these, um, but I don't like them. Yeah. And the worst of the worst, the 1916 home, which was a white hat, a white jersey, and white pants. And this was before the names and numbers were on the backs of jerseys, so it was literally just a plain white uniform. With no identifiers on it whatsoever. No stitching, like no B on the hat, nothing. No effort was put into that at all. I'm pretty sure they wore these recently. Did they? I'm pretty sure that they wore like the all white classic ones at some point in the last. Like, I remember seeing Jackie Bradley wear this uniform for some reason. Um, Oh, actually, no, I think you're right. I think they did. Yeah, and and I'm not sure why. Um, I agree with you. This was the right choice for the crappiest uniform, but I really loved their road uniform, and I'm going to tell you why. Their their road uniform is this pinstripe thing that you put up there um, that says Red Sox across it, but I love that the 1916 Red Sox wore pinstripes because at this time, the Yankees were a complete laughingstock of the league. And the fact that the Red Sox were winning World Series and wearing pinstripes at the same time is really funny to me. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of uh, hadn't thought of that because I was focused on the worst. But that actually isn't a bad jersey. 
No. I mean, generally, I don't like pinstripes. So I voted today on one of those uniform polls, pinstripes versus piping, and I'm piping all the way. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the best. Yeah. Number three is the uh, 2009 Rhodes, which are the gray uniforms with the Navy Boston across the chest. So basically... Um, since, what was it, 1934, the Red Sox road uniform, with the exception of a little bit of time there in the 70s, uh, was either gray with a red Boston or gray with a navy Boston. And it's like every 10 years it kind of flip-flops. And that was been, that's was that been the case now, too, because their current road is the gray with the red Boston. And from 2009 to 2014, it was the gray with the blue Boston. And I just think the blue... Settles into the gray a bit more, doesn't uh, pop out and kind of um, uh, make it a little bit more distinct, which isn't a bad look, but I like the uh, how the navy settles into the gray a bit more. It just looks a little bit cleaner, so I went with those road ones. Yeah, I love this choice. Um, I love the the blue lettering on those gray road jerseys. I hope they will go back to that. Um, that's. This would have actually been number one for me, the 2009. Oh, wow. uh, the, the, well, the, I guess I would say this combination would be number one for me, right? The classic, the home whites and the gray roads with the, with the yeah. blue Boston. That combination is the best. Yep. Agreed. That I do agree. Yeah. Then I had the second best, the 1908 home and roads, which were, uh, when the, the first year the Red Sox became the Red Sox, moved on from the Americans, uh, and they put on their chest a giant sock that said Boston. And I just loved the fashion statement of rolling out on the field, wearing a sh- an article of clothing that had a picture of another article of clothing just <laughs> draped across it. Loved it. And I kind of wanted to come back. Because, again, I feel like that's a really, like, <laughs> kind of, like, not really like satire, but kind of like humorous look that could be memed quite well. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm here in life for the memes. So I thought it looked good and also could be pretty memeable jerseys. So they only went with that look for a year, though. And then in the next season, they got rid of the actual like sock logo itself. Or well, mm. on the jerseys. They kept the, the logo for several years. But just on the jerseys, they got rid of it. And I thought, that's a shame. That should have been on there for more than a year. I don't like the plain hats, though, that they had during that year. So it was like the all-white unis, except throw a sock on the front of the shirt. Mm-hmm. I thought that was enough to uh, make it a little bit more distinct, though. Mm. But I do agree. This the, um, And I should have looked at when like the hats actually started being like considered part of the uniform and included with like designs and colors. But I don't remember why that started. But you're right. I mean, pretty much everybody at that time was just a plain hat to match everything else trying to save money on uniforms yep <laughs> yeah I, I don't have any huge problems with the boston sock i also don't love it um but it's fine it's fine yeah and then number one i had um in 1933 the red sox moved to the white uniform with red Sox across the chest and the red piping around the neck and down the buttons uh, and that has essentially been their home uniform since 1933, with the exception of the pullovers in the 70s. And that, that to me, is like the iconic 
Red Sox jersey, like when I think of like the first Red Sox player that I can like vividly remember, it's Nomar in those those whites playing shortstop. And so there's a bit of a nostalgic piece to it, but it also is just an incredibly clean look and one of the better jerseys in all of MLB. Yeah, it's I I thought it was criminally underrated in a lot of the uh, athletic. The athletic did a ton on Jersey Week, and this jersey was not rated all that high on lists. I want to say that it didn't get into the top ten on a lot of the the baseball lists. And to me, it's my favorite Boston jersey. And I know that both the Celtics and the Bruins have amazing jerseys, um, but I I love this jersey. Maybe it's just because I love baseball and the Red Sox so much, but there's nothing not to like about it. It's so symmetrical. You have the three letters red on one side, three letters socks on the other side, clean piping. Thing looks awesome. And coupled with the blue hat with the with the red B, I think it's the best combination in, in baseball. Agreed. And I think as far as Boston goes, I I might be torn between the Red Sox whites and the Celtics home whites. Both great. Yeah. <clears throat> Underrated college jersey, though, University of Maine hockey jersey is oh, 100%. The, the best. The best of the best. Agreed. Then some bonus logo talk. So um, just because I really needed to talk about the Red Sox 1950s alternate um, to the top three. Number three, I had the 1908 sock which is pretty sweet, which I already talked about. Number two, we had the 2009 Double Socks, which was the first time that they had gone with just the sock, um, like a silhouette, if you will, uh, in about 70 years. And in between, the Red Sox logo did have a double sock on it, but there was a whole bunch of added extra stuff, like Boston Red Sox, a couple circles, baseball. It was a little, it was too busy. It wasn't It wasn't a great look, but the Double Sock... You know you're talking about the Red Sox. It's subtle and clean. Looks great. And they went back to that starting in 2009, which was the first time since, I think, the 60s. Yeah. Where they had, like, a I mean like a weird, skinny 1960s-looking sock version. Um, so it was just a modernized version of what those raggly socks look like. And it's just a lot cleaner. and looks nice. I mean, I love the double sock. I think double sock's the best. Yeah. And then the 1950s alternate sock logo, which if you have not, um, if you're unaware of what it looks like, haven't read the article, please, please go look at my article because this is hands down one of the best logo in all of sports history, not just baseball. (laughs) It is a goofy ass sock with a giant face and a massive chin that makes it look way more like a condom than a sock. Yeah, that's... it's got a little Boston Red Sox hat just like sitting on his forehead, and the tube sock stripe looks like a sweatband. So you know this guy is taking his at bath seriously. He is he is ready to swing for the fences, and it is just so outstanding. So I would be okay if the Red Sox wore this uniform like once a year, just for yeah. us to laugh at. But it is really. Way too ridiculous for any sort of everyday <laughs> usage. Like, yeah. I think the Red Sox would just have to become the laughing stock of the league if they were going to wear this every day. Yeah, I think you might be right. I had a, a hat in college that had that logo on it, and it was my favorite hat. I wore it 
so so often and just completely wore it out. I mean, it's pretty funny. the The whole is. thing is ridiculous and like way too phallic and just weird. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so good. It's just so good. All right. Well, I'm glad we did that. Um, we've got a lot of great writing going on at Over the Monster right now, so I would urge you to go check those out. I'm going to be continuing with that uh, all-time series until uh, I count everybody down, and I'm starting with the starting lineup for hitters uh, coming up this week. So this is the best of the best in Red Sox history coming up. Um, so as you're listening to this, one will be coming out. Uh, Wednesday and Friday of this week. Keaton, you got anything coming out for that? Any? I don't. Any? I'm uh, I'm sitting out Marvel week. Um, I guess my roundtable piece. Okay. Uh, yeah, we got a good roundtable this week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's get to a few listener questions before we get on out of here. Um, we have one from Matt Kitson who says, uh, with the KBO starting up, which is really great news. Uh, what team are you supporting? For Red Sox Connection, Casey Kelly is on the LG Twins. Um, have you picked a team yet for the KBO? Are you planning to? Yes, I have. Who are you going with? I'm going with the NC Dinos. Oh, that's because, a popular choice around Twitter. Yeah, I mean, they have dinosaur mascots. Multiple. And they break dance. So, it's, hmm. I mean, how can you go wrong there? Yeah, no, that's strong. That's strong. Um, I am going with the Doosan Bears. Um, I really like saying Doosan Bears. Um, and that's pretty much the reason why. I, I like bears a lot as an animal. And I like the combination of those two words together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's that's strong the choice. only... Only a reason I could come up with. I haven't looked at any rosters for these teams, but I will watch Korean baseball for the bat flips. Um, I watch Korean baseball bat flips. And uh, if you're not following the Twitter handle, MyKBO, which he's probably blowing up even more than usual uh, these days, you should definitely check that out. I would like to see ESPN re-air these. Like, so uh, the first one I think starts tonight at midnight central time. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is obviously late, but I think that they should re-air them, like, during the day to get just the maximum amount of eyes on these. Yeah, I think you're right. I totally think you're right. Because the start times are basically, again, for central time, for frame of reference, because that's where I'm at, uh, midnight or 4.30 a.m. or 3 a.m., which is just not going to work. I might be able to watch like the first three innings of the ones that start at midnight, but I don't know if I could be consistently up until one a.m. Yeah. every night. So pretty I'd late like to see these these four thirty a.m. three a.m. <clears throat> game times replayed when I can actually watch them. Agreed. <clears throat> I hope they will do that. But it's really cool that ESPN is going to be airing these anyway. Yeah. Um, Nancy Toothacker uh, has our next question. She says, what's up with the murder hornets? <laughs> uh, so, Keaton, you did great. a little research. What is up with the murder hornets? Yeah, um, so these suck. Um, they apparently kill up to 50 people a year in Japan. And they're like two inches long. And they mainly feast on honeybees. Which is quite a bummer. 
because I hear that bees are dying at an alarming rate already. And so this doesn't seem like it's going to help. Um, I guess it's a good thing that honey lasts forever because we're going to need to stock up if these things start to like really take over. Apparently they don't start to get bad until like the fall. But, I mean, this year already sucks. Do we really need murder hornets? Really yeah, seriously. Read the room, home? hornets. What the hell? Read the freaking room. Yeah. I also could not find where they, like, where they are. I mean, a lot of the information from the story that I read was from Washington University, so maybe it's in the Pacific Northwest, but it'd be great if they didn't make it to Chicago. Yeah. I'm, I'm not <clears> usually <throat> for wiping out species of things, but wipe these things out. Please protect my honeybees. I had yep. some honey on some peanut butter toast today. It was delicious. I want to keep having honey. And not get stung by giant animals. True. Seth Day has our last question of the day. He says, will the break hinder or help the Red Sox? In my opinion, I think it's going to help them because we're going to get Verdugo healthy, presumably. Uh, and... Chris Sale, I mean, he gets to keep recovering. It's not going to help him this year, but, you know, he's not missing baseball right now. I think it'll ultimately hurt them in what we as fans were hoping they would do because the <clears throat> um, it's going to be a weird offseason, and... Uh, with all the players gaining a year of eligibility, which I think is the right way to have done it. Um, That adds a wrinkle into, it's going to be a really weird free agent class. Uh, Teams may not really spend money, but they pushed resetting the luxury tax thresholds back a year. So where the Red Sox would have reset this year and in theory been free to spend next year, that that gets delayed, that gets pushed out a year because they have to again remain under. I don't think they had any intention of spending this free agency, but I know a lot of fans were hoping that they would, and I guess myself included, I wasn't expecting it, but was hoping. Um, and maybe even see like a reunion with Mookie Betts, which I, it's like less than 1% chance, but I think what they're, um, we heard the front office talk about their like three to five year plan like, I don't know, 80 times this offseason when the Mookie Betts stuff like started, and I think this basically pushes all that stuff back where it may not be the case with other teams. They may not, may not have to push back their plans for whatever their contention cycle is or something like that. Uh, but the Red Sox do because they had that uh, plan from the outset that they needed to reset and they weren't going to spend money. Now I guess it basically gets pushed back two years. So I think that's really thrown a massive wrench into what their long-term plans were. So, my gut says it's going to hurt him, but um, I think I think it's hard to say until we actually kind of see what this offseason look like, looks like and really kind of what baseball looks like when we get back to playing because I think this is going to change a um, decent amount of the landscape in Major League Baseball. So yeah, my I mean, gut says hurt, but I don't know. A big wrinkle will be whether or not this the luxury tax threshold actually resets uh yep. with this you know season possibly resuming really soon um you know it, it might actually still reset which would yeah which would be ideal for the red Sox. but yeah if it does get well pushed 
this, I mean, we, I think we've briefly talked about this upcoming free agent class. It's nothing that's really like spectacular, but if the Red Sox had plans to spend, um, maybe like, I don't know, add a pitcher <laughs> that probably gets pushed back a year, which isn't great. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this edition of the podcast. A little bit shorter than our usual podcasts, but you know, there's a little bit less to say these days. So we do appreciate you joining us. Um, we, uh, also appreciate any reviews and, uh, anything that you guys can give us there. We appreciate that. You can subscribe to the show on anywhere you get your podcasts and you can follow both Keaton and I on Twitter. You can follow Keaton at the spoken Keats. You can follow me at at Dev Jake. You can follow over the monster at over the monster. Thanks for joining us. We'll be with you again next week.